2: Radio Westeros Episode 26 The Only Dragon You Need Spoilers!
3: All books! Hi there, listeners! Welcome back to another episode of Radio Westeros, I'm Yoke Boy in England, and with me as always is Lady Guinevere in Boston.
2: Yeah, hi there. Last time we took a detailed look at the plotting of Varys and Illyrio and considered the possibility that Aegon the 6th is a blackfire. This time we'll analyze Aegon himself as well as the company he keeps leading up to his invasion of Westeros.
3: And before we get started today, we just want to thank those of you who've made very kind donations via PayPal and YouTube to the podcast this year. Every donation really helps us out and we are very humbled by your support. And so a huge thanks to all of you for your generosity.
2: Yeah, definitely a very heartfelt thanks to all of you from us. And in case you still want to donate, there is a PayPal link on our website at RadioWesteros.com. And now here's what we have lined up today with Aegon and company. First, we'll look at young Griff, Griff, and those who sailed with Tyrion down the Rhoyne. We'll also consider who Septa lamore might be along the way. Then we'll look at the unmasked Aegon, followed by a close look at John Connington's story, and that will be with today's special guest, Brendan Beefish of the Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog.
3: Yeah, we're very happy to have Brendan back again for his third appearance on Radio Westeros. You might remember him for his great work with us on Stannis and also the Battle of Fire episode. And next we'll consider Harry Strickland and the Golden Company before we analyse Aegon's invasion, which again will be led by Bryn and Beefish. He has a really great idea of how Aegon's going to take Storm's End, so stick around for that.
2: And we'll round things up by considering the scenario of Danny and Aegon meeting in the story as adversaries, and what could happen there. There could even be a second Dance of the Dragon, so there are some exciting possibilities to discuss. And with our usual readings, that will be the episode. We do have to give spoiler warnings beyond the books, as we'll be mentioning events from Ariane 1 and 2 from the Winds of Winter. Both of those chapters have been posted on George's website, so spoilers for those, and a few others from Winds of Winter chapters as well. And with that, it's time to get going with Aegon and Company.
3: Another, stronger than Tommen, gentler than Stannis, with a better claim than the girl Mycela, a saviour come from across the sea to bind up the wounds of bleeding Westeros.
2: Okay, so, Illyrio's words to Tyrion there, ostensibly talking about Daenerys, but most likely in reality referring to his own candidate in the Game of Thrones. In our last episode, we outlined the plotting and behind-the-scenes machinations that went into Varys and Illyrio's plans for the boy known as Young Griff. While Westeros' Master of Whisperers and the Pentoshi Merchant are apparently pulling the strings in the plot to raise Aegon and seat him on the Iron Throne, there's a core group of people surrounding the boy that have been responsible for his upbringing and are ultimately leading him towards his destiny.
3: Yeah, and it's through Tyrion's POV in dance that we're introduced to this group. And we're going to take some time now to look at the cohort Varys and Illyrio have entrusted with their secret. Our introduction to them begins with Tyrion's journey from Pentos to the Rhoyne with Illyrio in a closed litter. It's during that slow progress that Illyrio first mentions Griff and indicates that it will be up to Tyrion and this friend of his to meet Daenerys and her army in Volantis with, quote, "...fresh forces and sufficient ships to carry them all across the sea to Westeros." Tyrion is led to believe that this is the full purpose of the mission to Volantis, although some things just
2: don't add up for him. Right, and after Lyrio mentions Griff a couple of times... "'Tyrion gets curious, and they have this exchange. "'You place a deal of trust in this man, Griff, "'another friend from your childhood?' "'No, a sellsword, you would call him, but Westerosi-born. "'Daenerys needs men worthy of her cause.' Illyrio raised a hand. "'I know, sellswords put gold before honor, you're thinking. "'This man, Griff, will sell me to my sister. "'Not so. I trust Griff, as I would trust a brother.'
3: And Tyrion isn't fully convinced, but talk soon turns to the Golden Company, Exiles, Love, the history of the countryside through which they're travelling, and ultimately the Dothraki. In response to Illyrio's assertion that sellswords would never stand against a horde of Dothraki screamers, that was proved at Kohor, Tyrion needles Illyrio, not even your brave Griff. And Illyrio replies... Griff is different. He has a son he dotes on. Young Griff, the boy is called. There never was a nobler
2: lad. And that's the first mention of young Griff. An offhand comment with a surprising amount of passion behind it. There never was a nobler lad is one of those Illyrio comments which ultimately lead us to suspect he has a much closer relationship to the boy than that of benefactor to his supposed father. Anyway, Tyrion and Illyrio travel on to the Rhoyne, and soon we meet Halden and Duck, two of the party that Tyrion is to join en route to meeting Daenerys in Volantis.
3: And Halden turns out to be called half which perhaps implies he's a citadel dropout with only half a chain. He turns out to be the healer of the small band, and the man in charge of young Griff's schooling. When Varys later tells Kevin Lannister that the boy reads and writes, speaks several tongues and has studied history and law and poetry. It's Halden who has taught him these things. We learn very little of Halden's backstory except for later when it turns out he is known to the men of the Golden Company. Rolly Duckfield, aka Duck on the other hand, turns out to be the boy's sworn sword and one of the people entrusted with his training at arms.
2: And Tyrion learns Duck's life story, how his father had been an armorer at Bitterbridge, and he had grown up around swords and swordplay. But Duck wanted to be a knight, not a simple soldier in Lord Caswell's garrison. Then when Duck's father made him a longsword to mark his 16th name day, Lord Caswell's heir, a weedy, pinch-faced sneak, according to Duck, liked the look of it so much he took it for himself. Duck tells Tyrion, "'When I complained,' Laurent told me to my face that my hand was made to hold the hammer, not a sword. So I went and got a hammer and beat him with it, till both his arms and half his ribs were broken. After that, I had to leave the reach, quick as it were. I made it across the water to the Golden Company. I did some smithing for a few years as apprentice. Then Sir Harry Strickland took me on as a squire. When Griff sent word down river that he needed someone to help him train his son to arms, Harry sent him me. So
3: incidentally, this Laurent Caswell is the very same man who hosted the tourney at Bitterbridge where Catelyn Stark had a meeting with Renly Baratheon and we first met Brienne of Tarth. In the aftermath of Renly's assassination, he locked himself inside his castle to avoid further involvement. Anyway, after hearing Duck's story... Tyrion cleverly observes that Duck must have been knighted by Griff, probably our first hint that Tyrion is puzzling out the identity of the sellsword he has yet to meet. Westerosi-born, Illyrio had told him, but now Tyrion knows Griff was a knight as well.
2: Okay, so in time we learn more about both Ducks and Halden's personalities. Each is devoted in their own way to young Griff, and will go on to play significant roles in his entourage, with Duck raised to Aegon's Kingsguard, and Halden continuing to be a principal adviser in much the way a Westerosi maester would be, tending to communication, healing, and lending advice and knowledge as needed. When we last see Haldun, it's through Ariane's eyes in The Winds of Winter, Ariane 2, where he's been left in charge of Griffin's Roost and is the one who decides to send Ariane to Storm's End. But all that's in the future for now, as Tyrion and the reader, has yet to meet Griff, his so-called son, and the rest of the entourage.
3: And when the trio reach Goyandroi by the river Royne, they're greeted by a live and well-made youth with a lanky build and a shock of dark blue hair. And it says that Tyrion put his age at 15, 16 or near enough to make no matter. Which, as we pointed out in our last episode, is interesting in light of the fact that Aegon Sixth would be 18 by now, a fact which surely would not elude Tyrion, who's extremely well-versed in Westerosi history especially this part of it which closely concerned his own family. And no matter what the reader thinks of Tyrion's accuracy in the age-guessing game, in this case it will be Tyrion's perception that matters as he tries to puzzle out young Griff's true identity.
2: Right. So, the boy is aboard a ramshackle pole boat called the Shy Maid with his alleged father, the sellsword Griff, and three other companions, the husband and wife, Yandri and Ysilla, who appear ruinish, and man the tiller and the kitchen, and, quote, a handsome septa in a soft white robe, whom we soon learn is called Lamor and is undoubtedly the septa who has, quote, instructed the boy in the mysteries of the faith since he was old enough to understand them. But Tyrion's attention is initially focused upon Griff, who silences the boy's enthusiastic greetings with an order, leading Tyrion to think this one will be trouble.
3: Yeah, and while Tyrion notes that his hair was as blue as his son's, he also notices immediately that he had red roots and redder eyebrows. And as he cheerfully deflects Griff's demand to know who he is and why he's there, Tyrion makes a comment to the boy about his blue hair, which draws out his claim that his mother was Tyroshi and he wears his hair blue in her memory. We see Tyrion teasing out hints here. But when Griff orders a private meeting with Tyrion, now being called Hugor Hill, and reads Illyrio's letter of explanation, we really get the idea that the ever-observant Lannister is on to Griff's not-so-cleverly-hidden identity.
2: Right. Griff is stern, humorless, serious, and, as Tyrion thinks, dangerous. We'll see echoes of the dynamics between them, later, between Tyrion and Jorah Mormont, and learn much more about the man's character when we gain his point of view, as we'll discuss in an upcoming segment. But this first meeting between the two is quite revealing, not only of Tyrion's perception of Griff, but of the many hints at his true identity that Tyrion is collecting. First, Tyrion notes that Griff can read and, quote, How many sellswords could boast of that? And when Griff asks Tyrion why he, a Lannister, would support the cause of Daenerys Targaryen, Tyrion's glib reply, For gold and glory, oh and hate, if you'd ever met my sister, you would understand gets this answer. I understand hate well enough. From the way Griff said the word, Tyrion knew that much was true. He has supped on hate himself, this one. It has warmed him in the night for years.
3: So we think Tyrion is already putting the pieces together here, and that he may know exactly the nature of the hatred that drives this Griff. And so it's probably no accident that Tyrion next lays a series of verbal traps for the man. He calls him Sir and gets the reply, I am no knight. Not only a liar, but a bad one. That was clumsy and stupid, my lord, Tyrion thinks, since Duck has revealed that he was knighted by Griff. Next Tyrion calls him, my lord. I am no lord, replies Griff. While well, Tyrion thinks again, liar. And now Tyrion lays the final trap, and this time it's a really good one, so here's the passage. What if we should find the queen and discover that this talk of dragons was just some sailor's drunken fancy? This wide world is full of such mad tales, grumpkins and snarks, ghosts and ghouls, mermaids, rock goblins, winged horses, winged pigs, winged
2: lions. And in reply it says, "Griff stared at him, frowning, I have given you fair warning, Lannister, guard your tongue or lose it, kingdoms are at a hazard here, our lives, our names, our honour, this is no game we're playing for your amusement. And while Tyrion agrees with a smile and polite words, we think he's just received all the confirmation he needs of Griff's true identity. The Winged Lion, or Griffin, is the sigil of House Connington, whose red-headed lord served as hand to Ares Targaryen sometime after Tyrion's own father, and was famously stripped of his lands and titles and exiled in the wake of his disastrous defeat at Stony Sept. Surely enough reason for a man to sup on hate for years?
3: Yes, it is. But as Tyrion tells him, no matter, Griff, you are no knight, and I am Hugo Hill. Revelations about secret identities are still yet to be made, and for now, all but the most perceptive reader is left wondering about Griff and thinking, what a motley bunch this group is. The Half Maester, the exiled Smith-turned Sellsword Duck, the mysterious exiled knights Griff, and then there's Septela Moore, who provides a counterpoint to the tension between Griff and Tyrion. She's called handsome and is friendly and at times quite flirtatious. Tyrion thinks she must be past 40, more handsome than pretty, but still easy on the eye. And while Tyrion sees stretch marks from childbirth on her belly and concludes that she's not as innocent as she appears and that, like everyone else aboard the Shy Maid, she has her secrets, he thinks she's welcome to her secrets, as he's only really interested in getting one thing from her.
2: (laughs) Typical Tyrion. But of course, his observations have spawned a number of secret identity theories in the fandom. And there's another passage in a Tyrian point of view, as the group nears Celoris, that really fans the flames of hidden identity theories. Here it is. Tyrion watched her closely. He had sniffed out the truth beneath the dyed blue hair of Griff and young Griff easily enough, and Yandri and Ysilla seemed to be no more than what they claimed to be, whilst Duck was somewhat less. L'amour, though. Who is she, really? Why is she here? Not for gold, I'd judge. What is this prince to her? Was she ever a true septa? Haldan took note of her change of garb as well. What are we to make of this sudden loss of faith? I preferred you in your septa's robes, Lamor. I preferred her naked, said Tyrion. Lamor gave him a reproachful look. That is because you have a wicked soul. Septa's robes scream of Westeros and might draw unwelcome eyes onto us. She turned back to Prince Aegon. You are not the only one who must needs hide.
3: So with the suggestion that she herself has something to hide, Set lamour and I think many of you listeners will agree, screams mystery. And readers have been puzzling over her true identity and coming up with different theories for the past five years. L'Amour has been proposed to be Ashara Sharadaine Sarah, Milario, and the mother of Tyen Sand, depending on who you ask. L'Amour's identity is a really difficult call, we think, with not a great deal of evidence either way. But there is an idea that's emerged relatively recently that did interest us, at least. That septu could have something to do with Wenda the White Fawn.
2: Yeah, and our guest from the RLJ episode, Egrain, was one of the founders of the theory, along with a poster from Westeros.org called Fire Eater, so a shout-out to them and anyone else involved. And Wenda, if you'll remember, was a member of the Kingswood Brotherhood. She was a notorious outlaw who branded her mark on the asses of high-born captives, which the unfortunate Merit Frey recalls. Wenda, as far as we know, was never caught, and who she really was and where she is now remains a mystery.
3: Okay, and so the theory makes note that Wenda was part of the Kingswood Brotherhood, who were led by Simon Toyne. If she was Septa to she might have fled Westeros after the demise of the Brotherhood and sought out Simon Toyne's kinsman, or, as the theory proposes, brother, Miles Toyne, who was leader of the Golden Company at that time, and that's how she could have entered Lero's employ. And in Barristan's entry into the White Book, we get this. Rescued Lady Jane Swan and her scepter from the Kingswood Brotherhood, defeating Simon Toyne and the Smiling Knight.
2: So, could that Septa have been Wenda in disguise? Could Wenda have fled and become L'Amour? Who was Wenda originally? The idea that Wenda could be L'Amour is a nice one, we think. It might explain where Wenda got the white in her name, with Septas being associated with white, and the timeline seems to work out, we think. And it fits Tyrion's assessment that L'Amour is a soiled Septa. Alternatively, the white fawn in Wenda's name could refer to her House of Origin, in which case we'd look to House Kefarin, a Stormlands house whose sigil is two white fawns that could well have connections with fellow Stormlanders from House Toyne. And of course, a noble origin could explain why John Connington refers to her as Lady L'Amour in his Dance with Dragons point of view chapters.
3: Okay, so an interesting theory... There's not enough evidence at this point to be too confident in it, but we thought that some of you listeners might not have heard it before and would like to hear a new idea. Like all L'Amour theories, it leaves as many questions as it would answer, but we think it's one that should at least be considered, despite the lack of hard and direct evidence.
2: Okay, and now we get to young Griff. The boy Illyrio calls our lad and is so clearly fond of has recently grown, quote, as tall as Griff, indicating he's yet an adolescent, as indeed his behavior will also indicate. But he's polite and extremely handsome. Tyrion observes that the lad was shorter than duck, but his lanky build suggested that he had not yet come into his full growth. This beardless boy could have any maiden in the Seven Kingdoms, blue hair or no those eyes of his would melt them. Like his sire, young Griff had blue eyes, but where his father's eyes were pale, the sun's were dark. By lamplight they turned black, and in the light of dusk they seemed purple. His eyelashes were as long as any woman's.
3: So another hint at adolescence there, and of course we noted the hint at purple eyes in our last episode. And Tyrion also notes that he's been well-trained to the sword, being evenly matched with his instructor when it came to swords. And he proves to be a good-natured enough boy for the most part. And bright at his lessons, in fact he's revealed to speak upwards of seven different tongues. After reciting a passage of SOC history for Halden, young Griff sums up the lesson with this concise yet ironic comment. If you want to conquer the world, you best have dragons.
2: And Tyrion laughs at that. And when the boy leaves Tyrion and Haldon to a game of Syvaz, Tyrion comments, The boy is bright. You've done well by him. Half the lords of Westeros are not so learned, sad to say. Languages, history, songs, sums, a heady stew for some sellsword's son. And it's over that game of Syvas that Tyrion challenges Haldun to a wager for secrets. If Tyrion wins, he gets to learn a secret from Haldun. And we know he did win the game, and can guess at what secret he learned when a giant turtle shows itself to the passengers aboard the shy maid, and is declared to be the old man of the river by the Rhoynish Yandry. The old man is a Rhoynish god, the son of Mother Roin, and Tyrion thinks to himself, And why not? Gods and wonders always appear to attend the birth of kings.
3: Okay, so a pretty big hint there that Tyrion knows who young Griff is, or who he's supposed to be. And as far as young Griff goes, we're getting a picture of an almost perfect prince. And we also see he's not afraid to get his hands dirty as he helps to steer the shy maid through a dense fog, further proving Varys' words to Kevin about the boy's upbringing but we do see flashes of imperfection under the surface. He rolls his eyes at Haldun's teachings and Septa L'Amour cautions him about his pride and boastful attitude towards the stone men when he says naively, let them try and trouble us, we'll show them what we're made of.
2: And he also shows signs of disobedience and stubbornness when he refuses Griff's orders to take L'Amour back to her chambers as they approach the sorrows and the bridge of dream and the dangers of the stone men. The response to his behavior is revealing as L'Amour gives a hint to their mission and Griff highlights a major theme in the boys' arc. Here's the passage. Young Griff gave his father a stubborn look. L'Amour knows where her cabin is. I want to stay. "'We are sworn to protect you,' Lamore said softly. "'I don't need to be protected. "'I can use a sword as well as duck. "'I'm half a knight.' "'And half a boy,' said Griff. "'Do as you're told, now.' "'The youth cursed under his breath "'and flung his pole down onto the deck.'
3: "'So half a boy, half a man. "'It's one of young Griff's major themes, "'and we're alternately shown signs "'of both competence and immaturity.' And the dangerous situation at the Sorrows reminds us how naive young Griff is, and how much those around him value his safety. Tyrion even points out to the boy I'm less than half of Halden, and no one gives a mummer's fart whether I live or die. You, though, you are everything.
2: Hmm, and as they pass beneath the bridge, young Griff confronts Tyrion on his remark. Here's the passage What do you mean I am everything? What do you mean by that? Why am I everything? Why, said Tyrion, if the stone men had taken Yandri or Griff or our lovely L'Amour, we would have grieved for them and gone on. Lose you? And this whole enterprise is undone, and all those years of feverish plotting by the cheesemonger and the eunuch will have been for naught. Isn't that so? The boy looked to Griff. He knows who I am.
3: So a revealing moment there which continues when Tyrion lays out what he's guessed and how he's arrived at it. In the process of revealing that he's guessed young Griff to be a dead boy he reveals that he was his own father who wrapped your corpse in a crimson cloak and laid you down beside your sister at the foot of the Iron Throne. And next Tyrion reveals that he knows who Griff is as well. Who better to race Prince Rhaegar's infant son than Prince Rhaegar's dear friend John Connington, once lord of Griffin's Roost and the Hand of the King?
2: But in the next moments, the shy maid begins its bizarre second encounter with the Bridge of Dream, and the stone men attack the boat. One of them goes for Aegon, and in spite of his previous boasting, the boy freezes and does nothing, unable to draw his sword. Knowing that the stone man carries greyscale. It's Tyrion who saves Aegon, driving the plague-ridden enemy away from the boy and eventually overboard, though as he falls, the stone man drags Tyrion with him.
3: And Tyrion himself is saved by Jon Connington, who dives into the unhealthy river to save him, ultimately leading to his own infection with the deadly plague. But it's amusing to consider that the, quote, feverish plotting by the cheesemonger and the eunuch to cultivate Aegon is saved by the intervention of a Lannister whose father ordered his death as an infant. And when Tyrion wakes aboard the shy maid once more, he finds a cautious Helden who warns him of the risks of Greyscale and a grateful L'Amour who has championed him since his rescue of the prince. Aegon himself is sullen, having been left behind while the others went ashore. Tyrion's thoughts again highlight the principal theme of the boys' Dance with Dragons arc. The perfect prince, but still half a boy for all that, with little and less experience of the world and all its woes.
2: And it's over a game of Syvass that Tyrion and Aegon will have their defining encounter, as we'll explore in our next segment. In our last episode, we suggested that aside from offering general counsel, Tyrion's purpose to Varys and Illyrio's plot may have been to provide knowledge of dragons, as we saw that Griff commanded him to set down all he knew of dragon lore. And of course it's through Tyrion's eyes that we see the truth of who Griff and his son really are, but soon we'll see that Tyrion's purpose in the narrative arc is actually something else. Tyrion, and George as it turns out, has ideas other than the simple transfer of knowledge, as Tyrion becomes the hinge upon which Varys and Illyrio's plot swings west instead of east.
3: In a sense, Tyrion serves the same narrative purpose to Aegon that Jura does to Daenerys, as each turns an impressionable youngster on a different track than their handlers have intended which is kind of interesting considering the journey Tyrion and Jorah end up taking together. But now we're going to move on to a segment all about Aegon, Sevas, and Aegon's decision-making process. And we'll also consider further what Tyrion knows or suspects about the prince's true identity. And to get us started, here's a reading of that fateful Sevas game between the dwarf and the hidden prince.
2: I told you. I know our little queen. Let her hear that her brother Rhaegar's murdered son is still alive, that this brave boy has raised the dragon standard of her forebears in Westeros once more, that he is fighting a desperate war to avenge his father and reclaim the iron throne for House Targaryen, hard-pressed on every side and she will fly to your side as fast as wind and water can carry her. You are the last of her line, and this mother of dragons, this breaker of chains, is, above all, a rescuer. The girl who drowned the slaver cities in blood, rather than leave strangers to their chains, can scarcely abandon her own brother's son in his hour of peril. And when she reaches Westeros, and meets you for the first time, you will meet as equals, man and woman. Not queen and supplicant. How can she help but love you then, I ask you? Smiling, he seized his dragon, flew it across the board. I hope your grace will pardon me. Your king is trapped. Death in four. The prince stared at the playing board. My dragon? is too far away to save you. You should have moved her to the center of the battle. But you said... I lied. Trust no one, and keep your dragon close." Young Griff jerked to his feet and kicked over the board. Sivass pieces flew in all directions, bouncing and rolling across the deck of the shy maid. Pick those up, the boy commanded. He may well be a Targaryen after all. If it please your grace, Tyrion got down on his hands and knees and began to crawl about the deck, gathering up the pieces.
3: OK, so a great scene there, wonderfully written by George, with the two games going on simultaneously. Tyrion cleverly convinces Aegon to abandon Varys and Illyrio's plans and make for Westeros, and then beats him at Savas as well. And this scene is a key example of Aegon's immaturity and petulance, contradicting the early image of this perfect prince.
2: And to start with, we see Tyrion purposefully prick the boy's pride in order to manipulate him into playing the Savas game. Tyrion suggests he's scared of losing to a dwarf, and predictably Aegon swallows the bait whole. Savas is used by George in two ways. First of all, some readers believe the movements on the board, such as a dragon killing an elephant, might be foreshadowing future events in the story. Second, it tells us a great deal about the players. It's a game of strategy, so we can see how a player employs military tactics and how they react to certain pressures. And as Aegon plays, we learn that he employs, quote, a young man's formation, as bold as it is foolish, he risks all for the quick kill.
3: Yeah, and Tyrion warns him about being overbold, but not being content with beating him at the game Tyrion also wants to play mind games with the boy as he tries to understand Varys and Illyrio's conspiracy further. He starts with a little advice on Savas. When the prince reached for his dragon, Tyrion cleared his throat. I would not do that if I were you. It is a mistake to bring your dragon out too soon. He smiled innocently. Your father knew the dangers of being overbold.
2: And this brings up the subject of Rhaegar and John Connington's relationship with him. Tyrion suggests they were the best of friends, while Aegon cautiously replies that they had been squires together. Tyrion's next comment gives strong hints that he's still just not buying whatever story is being sold to him. A true friend, our Lord Connington, He must be to remain so fiercely loyal to the grandson of the king who took his lands and titles and sent him into exile. A pity about that. Elsewise, Prince Rhaegar's friend might have been on hand when my father sacked King's Landing to save Prince Rhaegar's precious little son from getting his royal brains dashed out against a wall.
3: And we can't be alone in reading the doubt behind Tyrion's words, since Aegon becomes visibly irritated... He asserts that the child who died at Gregor's hands was really the son of a tanner whom Varys had bought for a jug of arbor gold from a common man living on Pisswater Bend. Varys then gave this Pisswater Prince to Elia and carried the real Aegon to safety, ultimately spiriting the true Targaryen across the narrow sea and then making painstaking plans to seat him on the Iron Throne. Here's the quote... When the pisswater prince was safely dead, the eunuch smuggled you across the narrow sea to his fat friend the cheesemonger who hid you on a pole boat and found an exile lord willing to call himself your father. It does make for a splendid story and the singers will make much of your escape once you take the Iron Throne, assuming that our fair Daenerys takes you for her consort.'
2: So, more implied doubt there, and here's where Tyrion starts to toy with the boy, planting doubt in his head that Daenerys will take him as a consort. Aegon is shocked at the suggestion Danny wouldn't want him, and clearly he's never considered the possibility. His anger at the suggestion is mirrored on the savas table when he thumps down his horse.
3: Yeah, Tyrion is gaining satisfaction in the power he has over Aegon here, being able to plant things in his head and in that sense control him. And in the meantime, the boy is making mistakes in the game, giving a strong hint that he'll be easily distracted by emotion in his decision-making process. And indeed, Tyrion continues to point out things Aegon may not have considered about his aunt, like the fact she is evidently proud, strong and fierce.
2: And listen to what he says here. Now, how do you suppose this queen will react when you turn up with your begging bowl in hand and say, Good morrow to you, auntie. I'm your nephew, Aegon, returned from the dead. I've been hiding on a pole boat all my life, but now I've washed the blue dye from my hair and I'd like a dragon, please. And oh, did I mention my claim to the Iron Throne is stronger than your own? And he continues
3: by implying that Aegon's army, the golden company of about 10,000 men will be smaller than his aunt's, thinking, there, that's made him good and angry. The dwarf could not help but think of Joffrey. I have a gift for angering princes. So clearly Tyrion is playing a game here that has nothing to do with Savas, attempting to manipulate Aegon into doing things differently on the one hand, perhaps simply because he can, But probably also to cause problems for his sister Cersei. He advises Aegon if I were you, I would go west instead of east, land in Dawn and raise my banners. The seven kingdoms will never be more ripe for conquest than they are right now. And Dawn, of course, would predictably rise in support of Elia's son and cause some serious trouble for Cersei.
2: Right. And so Tyrion then gives Aegon a lesson in trust. Trust no one, my prince, not your chainless maester, not your false father, not the gallant duck, nor the lovely Lamor, nor these other fine friends who grew you from a bean. Above all, trust not the cheesemonger, nor the spider, nor this little dragon queen you mean to marry. All that mistrust will sour your stomach and keep you awake by night, tis true, but better that than the long sleep that does not end.
3: So not only does he sow further doubt in the boy's mind, this time about everyone around him, but this passage also highlights again Tyrion's own continuing doubts about Aegon and the plot surrounding him. As we've mentioned in our last episode, the line Grew Ye from a Bean seems to imply that the boy has been grown or manufactured for a purpose. Tyrion is looking at the evidence at hand and perhaps coming up with something much closer to the truth than anyone realises if indeed the Blackfire theories are correct. Remember in the last segment how we pointed out that Tyrion perceives the boy to be 15 or 16? Well, whether or not he's correct in this assessment, his very perception combined with his certain knowledge of the expected age of the true Aegon, must be feeding some doubts in his mind, we think.
2: Yeah, and in the reading we opened with, when Aegon kicked over the board in a fit of tantrum, Tyrion thinks of the display, he may well be a Targaryen after all, which is perhaps another hint not only at his doubts as to Aegon's true origins, but also at the conclusions Tyrion's coming to. Perhaps all of his doubts, going back to his discussions with Illyrio about the Golden Company and Volantis, Red and Black Dragons, and Westerosi Exiles, are finally starting to coalesce into a pattern in his perceptive brain. Remember, the limited third-person point-of-view style of narration means that we don't necessarily see all of the thoughts in the point-of-view character's head. It's obvious that Tyrion has realised most of what Illyrio told him about supporting Daenerys and wanting to help her regain the Iron Throne were lies and cover-ups. It's probably not a stretch to believe that he might be arriving at something very close to the truth. And
3: finally, we see the checkmate to Tyrion's mind game, the Inception, if you will. Tyrion plants the idea for Aegon to give up on his plan of going to Daenerys and to instead head west to invade Westeros. He lays out, and with good reasoning, why the time is ripe to go for the Iron Throne. Then he appeals to Aegon's pride, saying that such a course of action will make him a bold and true scion of House Targaryen and a dragon rather than a beggar.
2: Yeah, so Tyrion is perhaps the best psychologist of all the point-of-view characters, and here he's working his magic. Earlier, he thought that Varys and Illyrio were playing the Game of Thrones, and Aegon was merely a piece. Here, we see that Tyrion quite fancies a go at playing, too, and he's quite successful at appealing to Aegon's immaturity and pride, and so we get a hint that this characteristic might contribute to some trouble for Aegon in the future, and might even play a role in his downfall.
3: Yeah, it could. And it certainly shows something about his decision-making process, as we'll see. And with Tyrion now in marine, if he ends up advising Danny, his knowledge of Aegon's personality could come in very handy indeed. Not to mention that his possible suspicions about the boy's true origins could lead to some interesting revelations on his part to Daenerys, perhaps even leading her to the conclusion that Aegon could be the Mummer's Dragon. For now, that's in the future, and the Savas game is the last time Tyrion sees the young prince as he ventures into Soloris with Halden, and fate, in the form of Jorah Mormont, removes Tyrion from the little group aboard the Shy Maid.
2: And so the next time we see Aegon, it's in John Connington's point of view. They're preparing to meet the Golden Company, and while Aegon's hair remains blue for safety reasons, he's going to be presented as a prince, and so must look the part. The prince wore sword and dagger, black boots polished to a high sheen, a black cloak lined with blood-red silk. With his hair washed and cut, and freshly dyed a deep dark blue, his eyes looked blue as well. At his throat, he wore three huge square-cut rubies on a chain of black iron, a gift from Magister Illyrio, red and black, dragon colours.
3: And this is an interesting reveal, and it highlights yet another theme in Aegon's arc, that of the prince in hiding. We know George likes to play with his tropes, And in A Song of Ice and Fire, he's given us not one, but several examples of this trope, all playing out in different ways. Daenerys is the classic example of the kind of rightful king version or rightful queen. A princess sent away at birth and raised in obscurity, but with knowledge of her birthright. Jon Snow, of course, could be an example of royalty revealed. That is The prince raised in ignorance of his true birth, only to have it revealed at a key moment. And Aegon is yet another version somewhere in between, probably closer to rightful king as he has been raised with full knowledge of his supposed heritage. Of course, Aegon could also turn out to be the wrongful heir, at the same time that he's declaring Danny to be such. George is setting up a really wonderful clash of tropes for the future of A Song of Ice and Fire, and we'll be talking about that future a bit more in a later segment.
2: Okay, so in Connington's first chapter, we see a boy who has clearly been influenced by the words of Tyrion Lannister, and who's bold and perhaps a little bit the headstrong prince. As they set out to meet with the Golden Company, his very own army, he tells Griff, I like the sound of that. My army. Are they, though? They're sellswords. Yolo warned me to trust no one.
3: So just a bit of uncertainty there, hinting at the still-half-a-boy theme that has followed the young prince. And in fact, his blossoming confidence may yet turn out to be the boldness of youth magnified by arrogance and haste, and easily influenced by external factors in spite of Connington's attempt to give him balanced advice. When Aegon tells the assembled captains of the Golden Company to follow into Westeros and I am the only dragon you need, his foster father urges him to think about what he's suggesting. His reply proves just how much impact Tyrion's words have had upon him. I have, the lad insisted. Why should I go running to my aunt as if I were a beggar? My claim is better than her own. Let her come to me in Westeros.
2: Hmm, and Connington thinks of Aegon's boldness with the Golden Company. This is a side of Aegon I never saw before. It was not the prudent course, but he was tired of prudence, sick of secrets, weary of waiting. Win or lose, he would see Griffin's roost again before he died and be buried in the tomb beside his father's. And so we see John Connington himself throwing caution to the wind, driven by things we'll be talking about in our next segment and agreeing to support the boy's proposal, though it flew in the face of everything Varys and Illyrio had been planning for years. And of course,
3: by the end of A Dance with Dragons, we see Varys assassinate both Pycelle and Kevin Lannister, And so obviously the duo has performed one of their famous course corrections and are working to sow chaos in King's Landing in support of Aegon's invasion in the south. And it's in this scene that we get Varys' speech about Aegon's upbringing. And we expect that this ideal of the perfect prince, raised in the knowledge of his duty to the kingdom and educated to the highest standards, will be challenged pretty hard in the upcoming storyline.
2: Yeah, already in John Connington's second chapter, with the invasion underway at Griffin's Roost, Connington realises that Prince Aegon Targaryen was not near as biddable as the boy young Griff had been. And last we see Aegon in A Dance with Dragons is him informing his one-time foster father that he himself, not Connington, would be leading the planned attack on Storm's End here's the passage. We've been talking with Strickland and Flowers. They told us about this attack on Storm's End that you're planning. John Connington did not let his fury show. And did homeless Harry try to persuade you to delay it? He did, actually, the prince said. But I won't. Harry's an old maid, isn't he? You have the right of it, my lord. I want the attack to go ahead, with one change. I mean to lead it.
3: So, in upcoming segments, we'll discuss Connington, the Golden Company and the invasion before coming back to our predictions for Aegon's future. What we've learned so far about the boy, though, suggests that his youth and possible recklessness will have a major impact on the storyline at some point, as Tyrion's manipulation has proven, and Varys's claims about Aegon's perfection will be seriously tested when the still-half-a-boy theme takes centre stage as Aegon seizes control of the invasion himself.
2: And up next, I'll be joined by special guest Brendan Beefish to discuss John Connington. And to lead us in, here's a reading of Connington's recollection of the fateful Battle of the Bells.
3: For years afterward, John Connington told himself that he was not to blame, that he had done all that any man could do. His soldiers searched every hole and hovel. He offered pardons and rewards. He took hostages and hung them in crow cages and swore that they would have neither food nor drink until Robert was delivered to him. All to no avail. Tywin Lannister himself could have done no more. He had insisted one night to Blackheart during his first year of exile. There's where you're wrong, Myles had replied. Lord Tywin would not have bothered with the search. He would have burned that town and every living creature in it. Men and boys, babes at the breast, noble knights and holy septons, pigs and whores, rats and rebels, he would have burned them all. When the fires gutted out and only ash and cinders remained, he would have sent his men in to find the bones of Robert Baratheon. Later, when Stark and Tully turned up with their host, he would have offered pardons to both of them and they would have accepted and turned for home with their tails between their legs. He was not wrong, John Connington reflected, leaning on the battlements of his forebears. I wanted the glory of slaying Robert in single combat, and I did not want the name of Butcher. So Robert escaped me and cut down Rhaegar on the trident. I failed the father, but I will not fail the son.
2: And now we're back to talk more about John Connington with our friend Jeff, also known as Brendan B. Fish, from the Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog. Hi, Brendan, and welcome back to Radio Westeros.
4: Hey, Lady Quinn. It's, glad- it's great to be back with you all from Marine and the Battle of Fire. Uh- Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.
0: Antillia cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
4: Um, I had a lot of fun doing that. And since we recorded that episode, which was several months ago, uh, we met actually at Balticon, which was a blast. And we even got to hear George R. R. Martin read a brand new Winds of Winter chapter, which was, it was whoa. Like, it was a great chapter.
2: Yes, it really was. It was totally amazing to hear George read the forsaken chapter. And it was great to meet you in real life as well. Uh, Not to mention all the other great folks that we got to hang out with from the Facebook and Reddit groups, especially and big shout out to everyone else we met in Baltimore. I look forward to the next one anyways. So it's great to have you back with us. And I am ready now to talk about John Connington. Uh, In a previous segment, we talked about Griff and Tyrion's perception of him. But we eventually get two John Connington chapters in A Dance with Dragons, which gives us a greater insight into the man. So tell us, Brendan, who is Connington when he comes into his own?
4: So when we receive our first John Connington point of view chapter in A Dance with Dragons, we find a man with a really haunted past and an uncertain but likely dark future. We kind of get hints at his history when he's griffed to Tyrion, but when we get inside of his head, we get our first look at Robert's Rebellion from the perspective who fought for the Targaryens during the war. I believe that might be at first, until we get to Barristan later on in A Dance with Dragons. Although, interestingly, even though he fought for the Targaryens, his loyalty wasn't necessarily to Eris II.
2: But if it wasn't to Aerys Targaryen, or even the Targaryens as a whole, who was he loyal to then?
4: So, Connington was almost certainly a Rhaegar loyalist. He didn't really think that highly of Aerys, and from his point of view, we get things like, quote, Mistrust can poison you, make you sour and fearful. King Aerys was such. By the end, even Rhaegar saw that.
2: So that definitely places Connington, and even Rhaegar to an extent, in opposition to Ares. But why was John Connington such a Rhaegar loyalist?
4: It's interesting, because shortly after the publication of A Dance with Dragons, George R. R. Martin said at a convention, or an appearance, I'm not sure which, that there was a character in the story who was gay, and pretty much it's all but certain that John Connington was the character that he was referring to. And the object of Connington's affections was, drumby please, Rhaegar Targaryen. Uh, Connington mentions Rhaegar by name more than any other character in his chapters. More than that, he calls Rhaegar his, quote, silver prince. So, in his final chapter, he's climbing the steps of Griffin's Roost, and John Connington thinks excitedly of the one time that he climbed the steps of the tower with Rhaegar, saying, quote, As he climbed, he remembered past ascents, a hundred with his lord father would like to stand and look out over woods and crags and see, and know all that he saw belonged to House Connington, and one, only one, with Rhaegar Targaryen. But unfortunately for Connington, Rhaegar never returned his affection. From the narrative, it seems that Rhaegar was pretty much a heterosexual. He was married to Ilya of Dorne, and John Connington's response to Ilya was, well, jealousy.
2: Yeah, we have a quote here about that. He says, Ilya was never worthy of him. She was frail and sickly from the first, and childbirth only left her weaker.
4: Exactly. It's explicit that Connington had a crush on Rhaegar, but it was unrequited. However, this didn't prevent John Connington from answering the call of his silver prince and his father when Robert Baratheon rose in rebellion against the Iron Throne. During Robert's rebellion... Connington was appointed as Hand of the King and Commander of the Royal Armies, after the former Hand, Owen Merriweather, failed to put down the Rebellion. Connington's task would be to defeat Robert himself in the Stormlands.
2: And Robert Baratheon had won a string of battles in the Stormlands and had united most of the Stormlords under him. Unfortunately for Robert, he then encountered the Reach Army led by Randall Tarley's vanguard and was defeated at Ashford.
4: Right. So Robert fled northwest to a town in the riverlands known as Stony Sept. John Connington, now in command of the royal army, raced after Robert to end the usurper's rebellion once and for all. At Stony Sept, Connington began to search house to house for Robert, but the townsfolk were sheltering his rebellious liege lord, and Connington was forced to adopt new tactics to win the battle. In Connington's mind, he treated the townsfolk mercifully and stayed within accepted bounds of warfare. Tragically for him... This didn't net him, Robert.
2: No, it didn't. Here's the quote. His soldiers searched every hall and hovel. He offered pardons and rewards. He took hostages and hung them in crow cages and swore that they would have neither food nor drink until Robert was delivered to him, all to no avail.
4: Right. So while John Connington and his men searched for Robert, an army led by Hoster Tully and Ned Stark descended on Stony Sept, battle was met in the town itself. Robert Baratheon emerged from hiding to join the battle, and according to John Connington, nearly killed him on the steps of the town. sept. The rebels were victorious against Connington, and he beat an orderly retreat away from the town, but this defeat would have massive ramifications for the Gryphon Lord and for his
3: house.
2: Yeah, Aerys II Targaryen stripped John Connington not only of the handship, but of his wealth, lands, and title, and then, to add insult to injury, he exiled him. Worse still the Targaryens ended up losing the war. And to add further insult, Robert Baratheon became king and reduced House Connington from a lordly house to a mere knightly house. And then what happened to the Gryphon Lord next?
4: Dishonorable exile is what happened to John Connington. Fittingly, John Connington joined up with a band of exiled sellswords known as the Golden Company. As a former lord and commander, Connington seemed to ingratiate himself into the sellsword company. He befriended the then Captain General of the, of the company, Miles Toyne, and he rose quickly in rank with the Golden Company for the next five years.
2: Yep, here's a quote. John Connington might have been one of those successors if his exile had gone otherwise. He had spent five years with the company, rising from the ranks to a place of honor at Toyne's right hand. Had he stayed, it might well have been him the men turned to after Miles died instead of Harry Strickland, but Griff did not regret the path he'd chosen. But fate, or more accurately, the machinations of Varys the Spider, didn't allow John Connington to stay on this course, did it?
4: No, it didn't. At some point during his service with the Golden Company, Varys approached Connington with a plan that required him to dishonor himself, even further than he had already dishonored himself. Varys needed Connington to act as a second father to the quote-unquote miraculously survived Aegon. Good news, right?
2: Yeah, or is it?
4: Well... Perhaps, but Varas needed Connington to do more than act as a father figure to the boy. He had to debase himself even further from being a sellsword. Varas insisted that Connington disappear from the Golden Company and quote-unquote die. The scheme that Vares conceived required Connington to be found stealing from the Golden Company's war chest and be driven into a second exile. Worse still, he would have to quote-unquote drink himself to death. Now, this really pissed off the proud griffin lord.
2: Oh, yes, more than pissed him off. It eats away at him, even into the present narrative. Here's a quote. Griff had gone along with the spider's scheme for the boy's sake, but that did not mean he liked it any better. Let me live long enough to see the boy sit the Iron Throne, and Varys will pay for that slight and so much more. Then we'll see who's soon forgotten. So, we've established much of Connington's backstory, his feelings for Rhaegar Targaryen, and his anger over being forced to dishonor himself. So, Brendan, what should we know about Jon Connington as he prepares to take his prince across the Narrow Sea?
4: Connington's a really fascinating character portrait when we meet up with him at A Dance of Dragons. It's possible that when you go way back, that Varys and Elyra hope for the man that Connington once was during Robert's Rebellion. Instead, they have a bit of a problem on their hands. Yeah, how so? Well, as a once-and-future great lord, John Cunnington might have lent legitimacy, his experiences, and his leadership qualities to Aegon. However, as we talked about before, the man who is returning to Westeros is simply not the same one who left it. His years of exile changed John Cunnington quite considerably. Though he still retains some of his past characteristics, he's an exceptionally unhappy and aggrieved man who was still in mourning over the loss of his silver prince. However, Connington's grief manifests itself into a desire for vengeance. In the narrative, Connington returns to this refrain of, quote, I failed the father, but I will not fail the son. In and of itself, that's not really a bad thing, but then consider his final thoughts from the lost lord. He will not fail the son, and to Connington, this means that he will, quote unquote, end the usurper's line. Consider that for a moment. John Connington has focused his sadness into a vengeance that extends not just to Robert, but to Robert's entire line. And that means children. It means innocents like Marcella and Tommen. Now, perhaps subconsciously, John Connington is echoing the monster of Robert's Rebellion, Tywin Lannister.
2: Yeah, that's quite the echo from Robert's Rebellion. Tywin Lannister had sacked King's Landing at the end of the rebellion. Two of his men, Gregor Clegane and Amory Lorch, had brutally murdered Elia's children, apparently ending Rhaegar's line. Now John Connington will pay blood for blood and child for child to avenge his silver prince. But that's not the only similarity between John Connington and Tywin Lannister, is it?
4: No, it's not. It's a bit more explicit than that. John Connington's Tywinesque turn saw itself fully realized in Connington's post war reflections on the Battle of the Bells. In conversation with Miles Toyne some years before, he defended his actions at Stony Sepp by saying, quote, Tywin Lannister himself could have done no more. However, Miles Toyne scoffed at Connington's surety and told him that Tywin Lannister would have done more, much more.
2: Right. Toyne says, Lord Tywin would not have bothered with a search. He would have burned that town and every living creature in it. Men and boys, babes at the breast, noble knights and holy septons, pigs and whores, rats and rebels, he would have burned them all. When the fires guttered out and only ash and cinders remained, he would have sent his men in to find the bones of Robert Baratheon. Later, when Stark and Tully turned up with their host, he would have offered pardons to both of them, and they would have accepted and turned for home with their tails between their legs." That's a pretty direct statement there by Toyne to Connington. So how does Connington respond?
4: Well, ominously, Connington realizes that Miles Toyne was correct. He thinks, quote, he was not wrong. I wanted the glory of slaying Robert in single combat, and I did not want the name of Butcher. So Robert escaped me and cut down Rager on the Trident. The lesson that John Connington took from his experiences at Stony Sept and his conversation with Miles Toyn was that he couldn't be merciful or operate within the accepted bounds of warfare to actually win a war. Lord Connington would have to supersede ethical norms of warfare and murder a whole lot of innocent people that get in the way of his objective. He would have to become a butcher. So, John Connington will take on the name of Butcher to win the Iron Throne for his dragon.
2: Hmm, and there's something else at work too for John Connington. He's dying, this time for real. As we mentioned in the last segment, John Connington was infected by Grayscale while trying to save Tyrion. By the end of The Griffin Reborn, John Connington sees that Grayscale has reached down his nails and is down to the knuckle of his middle finger. It's spreading quickly. What we didn't explore was how Grayscale is impacting Connington's perspective and personality. So, Brendan, what's going on there?
4: Connington's tragic contraction of Grayscale has really dire consequences going forward. What's sad about it is that it's 100% fatal to infected adults, but it moves slow. Connington thinks he might have some time left, but not much.
2: And why is that so dire?
4: It gets back to Connington's reflections on what Tywin Lannister would do to win. He had moved towards Tywin Lannister's consequentialism, and this meant that Connington would have to move quickly to seat Aegon onto the Iron Throne before he dies. Connington angrily thinks that, quote, he was sick of hiding, sick of waiting, sick of caution. I do not have time for caution. And what that really translates to is that Connington is running out of time, and what this means is that he'll likely have to make moral and ethical shortcuts to achieve victory. He has no time to operate ethically when death is approaching. In the context of thinking about his grayscale and the time that he has left in the world, he thinks, quote, Death he knew, but slow. I still have time. A year. Two years. Five. Some stonemen live for ten. Time enough to cross the Narrow Sea to see Griffin's Roost again. To end the Usurper's Line. To end the Usurper's Line for good and all.
2: So, death will come for John Connington in time, but it will come a lot sooner for many innocents first. To return to your earlier point, Marcella and Tommen are in mortal peril, but you think there are other innocents that are in even greater danger?
4: I do. We'll explore the Battle of Griffin's Roost in a little more detail in the next segment. But one of the things that happens after the battle is that John Connington takes several hostages. Three of those hostages he took were the brother, sister, and bastard son of the knight of Griffin's Roost, Red Ronan Connington. Now, taking the hostages in and of itself was not unprecedented. Typically, hostages in Westeros were taken to ensure the good behavior of a potential enemy. For instance, Cersei Lannister took the Red Wine twins hostage in *A Game of Thrones* to keep Paxter Redwine from sailing against them.
2: Right, and it worked. Lord Redwine stayed out of the War of the Five Kings until Mace Tyrell sided with the Lannisters. So let's return to Griffin's Roost. John Connington had taken Red Ronnett's family hostage. But what makes this case different?
4: In a word, it's Ronnet himself. The Dance with Dragons epilogue opens with Red Ronnet Connington in front of Kevin Lannister's small council, declaring that he was no traitor and pleading with the councillors to let him march against John Connington to reclaim Griffin's roost. Kevin and the small council doubt Ronnet's innocence, but they tell him he'll have the opportunity to prove his innocence by marching with that army when they set out from King's Landing.
2: And that means Ronnet's family is in danger, right?
4: Yeah. It's worse still when you consider John Connington's thoughts on the child hostages. He tells them, quote, No harm will come to you unless Red Ronnet proves an utter fool. The problem was that Ronnet was proving an utter fool by declaring his intention to march against John Connington. Tragically, in the Winds of Winter, we learn that a Tyrell army is finally marching against John Connington. Now, I expect Ronnet to be in that army, and with Ronnet marching against him, John Connington will be faced with a decision whether to kill his kin or not. Given his belief that he needs to become Tywin Lannister and a butcher to seat Aegon onto the Iron Throne, I think he'll do it.
2: Right. John Connington even thinks to himself that he did not relish the notion of celebrating his return by killing one of his own kin. And he might not relish it and be sad about it, but it seems likely he'll do it.
4: Yeah, it'll be a really tragic event for John Connington and for the readers as well. But it fits with his newfound identity and characterization that George imbued in the character. Kevin Lasser reported at the end of A Dance of Dragons that, quote, if this is indeed John Connington, he will be a different man, older, harder, more seasoned, more dangerous.
2: Yeah, More dangerous indeed, as he moves rapidly towards the consequences of vengeance that George loves to explore. So, thank you so much for being with me for this segment, Brendan. And listeners, if you want to check out more of Brendan's work on John Connington, you can find his essay, Blood of the Conqueror, The Exile, on the wars and politics of ice and fire blog.
4: Thanks, Lady Gwen. It was a lot of fun to... Be here and talk about a really sad subject, but a really good one all the same, and one that I'm really looking forward to George exploring more in The Winds of Winter.
2: Yes, we are as well. And Brendan will be back in a bit talking with Yoke Boy about Aegon's invasion and the taking of Storm's End. And up next, we have a segment all about Harry Strickland and the Golden Company, who will be a key part of the invasion. Mm -hmm.
3: Harry Strickland had always been a genial man, better at hammering out contracts than hammering on foes. He had a nose for gold, but whether he had the belly for battle was another question.
2: So, homeless Harry Strickland is the current Captain General of the Golden Company. He was their paymaster and was promoted when Miles Toyne passed away around four years before we first meet him on page. His great-grandfather lost his lands when he rose with Damon Blackfire during the first Blackfire Rebellion. It's through John Connington's eyes that we see Harry, with an interesting footnote that John Connington believes he himself would have succeeded Blackheart as Captain General if he hadn't left for the employ of Varys and Illyrio. Harry is described as looking, quote, "...little like a warrior." portly with a big round head, mild grey eyes and thinning hair that he brushed sideways to conceal a bald spot.
3: Soon, the groundwork for tensions between Connington and Strickland is laid out. Remember that John is a very serious man who not only believes in Aegon's perfection, but demands it of those around him. He knows about the fine lines that can decide a war and, as we know, he's driven to seat Aegon on the throne for reasons deep and very personal. He knows there's little margin for error in warfare and so the leader of the Golden Company better live up to his standards.
2: And with the first mentions of Strickland in Connington's point of view, we see hints that he's suspicious of the man. He wonders what would happen if Strickland meant him ill, concurs with L'Amour that the Golden Company cannot be fully trusted since the death of Blackheart, and he thinks that, quote, he preferred to keep Harry Strickland ignorant of where he and the prince had been.
3: Yet Clear Connington held Blackheart in very high regard. And just remember, who has led the Golden Company previously? Warriors like Bittersteel and Mailey's Blackfire. But Connington thinks of Strickland as a, quote, different sort of man. So, a different sort of man, which might lead the reader to wonder if Harry is treacherous or dangerous, perhaps. But soon we see Connington's gripe. It says... Griff had feared that the company might have grown lax under Harry Strickland, who had always seemed more concerned with making friends than enforcing discipline.
2: So, while a successful sellsword company generally relies on discipline, it seems Strickland might be a bit lax for Connington's liking, and pair this with the description of him looking little like a warrior and the fact that he used to be the paymaster, and it seems the Golden Company might currently be in the hands of a glorified clerk. This is a man who'll soon be leading 10,000 men to war, and we see more of his questionable character when Connington meets him and Strickland is unable to stand after suffering blistered feet during the march. Chan sees this as a weakness, and the blisters come to symbolise Strickland's reluctance to go to war.
3: And Harry perhaps shows why he's not worthy of Connington's trust, as it's revealed, he's told his men about young Griff supposedly being Aegon Targaryen. From his point of view, the sellswords were growing restless, wondering why they were refusing contracts and so on. But we can't help thinking of Lamour’s warning that all it takes is one to bring us all to ruin.
2: And as it happens, telling the man Young Griff's secret worked out in the end, but this slip can't have impressed Connington. After John doubts Strickland's belly for war, Aegon announces his intention to invade Westeros and wants the Golden Company's support. Strickland is negative and cautious. He talks of the risk and low chance of success, and Connington thinks he had, quote, heard enough of the Captain General's cowardice. Finally, Aegon rouses the troops and, one by one, the men of the Golden Company rose, knelt, and laid their swords at the feet of the young prince. And it's noted that the last to do so was homeless Harry Strickland, blistered feet and all.
3: Yeah, Harry's standing last. And the mention of his blistered feet once again. All very symbolic, we think. A man who, in his heart, doesn't want to march to war. Strickland even seems to have trouble with his own men. He's the leader of what should be a very disciplined company. And yet the captains seem to pay no attention to his protests about the rather hasty invasion plan, highlighting a lack of respect. Furthermore, we can see the tension between him and Connington growing and growing. At the points where they should be reading from the same page, there are more signs of friction.
2: Right. As Aegon and the Golden Company land and take Griffin's roost, Strickland says, Let them come. This place can stand against twenty times our number, so long as we are well provisioned. And despite not protesting, John Connington thinks to himself that he has no intention of letting them come.
3: Again, Strickland wants to wait things out. Is pointed out that he's sadly missing his lost elephants, which we think is quite funny. And he also wants to wait while the scattered company reassembles, which brings about this reaction. Connington gave the plump Captain General a cool look. This man is no blackheart, no Bittersteel, no Melees. He would wait until all seven hells are frozen if he could rather than risk another bout of blisters? And then he says aloud, We did not cross half the world to wait. Our best chance is to strike hard and fast before King's Landing knows who we are. I mean to take Storm's End.
2: Well, in this instance, the men reach compromise, because it's going to take ten days of preparation anyway, but there's no doubt in our minds that that's not the end of Connington versus Strickland tensions. Almost everything we're told about Strickland speaks to him being the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. And the trouble for John Connington is that he needs the Golden Company, and he needs to be in sync with their leader. But these two are like chalk and cheese.
3: Yeah, they are like chalk and cheese, and although Connington is pleasantly surprised by how well the company is organised under Homeless Harry, it is a surprise to him. Expect there to be trouble between these two in the future, we think. With Connington's war plans requiring bold and risky decisions, and Strickland's very cautious nature, it seems like a purposeful juxtaposition by George here. Which of the men will suffer most because of these tensions remains to be seen, but we think it's sure to be a stormy winds of winter for the Connington and Strickland relationship at the very least.
2: Okay, and now that we've looked at Harry Strickland, we thought we'd have a quick rundown of the history of the Golden Company. As we've said before, the Golden Company were formed by Bittersteel, a royal bastard legitimised by Aegon the Unworthy, after the First Blackfyre Rebellion, Bittersteel escaped the redgrass field and fled to Essos. He noticed that other exiles were joining sellsword companies, and so he formed the Golden Company to bind Blackfyre supporters together.
3: Here Bittersteel's dream was to seat Blackfyre upon the Iron Throne, and as he was unable to succeed in his lifetime, we're told... On his deathbed, Sir Agor Rivers had famously commanded his men to boil the flesh from his skull, dip it in gold, and carry it before them when they crossed the sea to retake Westeros. His successors had followed his example.
2: And the Golden Company became well known for not breaking their contracts, boasting that our word is good as gold. This is one of the ways the company distinguished themselves amidst the legions of fickle sellswords and Essos, and why it came as such a surprise to characters like Ariane and Tyrion that they had broken contract with Mir.
3: As Ryan, right, Ariane characterizes them as a brotherhood of exiles and the sons of exiles, united by the dream of bitter steel. It's home they want as much as gold. So you have to remember that a lot of these men are kept from returning to Westeros for things their ancestors did, namely support the Blackfire cause. With the male line having been apparently snuffed out when Baristan slew Meles the monstrous in single combat, we can see that the original purpose of the Golden Company and the resolve of its men might be somewhat lost. John Connington thinks of them as ghosts and liars, revenants from forgotten wars, lost causes, failed rebellions, a brotherhood of the failed and the fallen, the disgraced and the disinherited. This is my army. This is our best hope.
2: So, good reason to imagine that returning to Westeros might be the dream for many within the Golden Company, no matter whose banner they fight under. And now, with Harry Strickland in charge, who, as we said, seems like a strange but perhaps fitting choice for these men of uncertain purpose, we see the Golden Company through the eyes of John Connington. Here's a passage. They found the Golden Company beside the river as the sun was lowering in the west, it was a camp that even Arthur Dane might have approved of, compact, orderly, defensible. A deep ditch had been dug around it, with sharpened stakes inside. The tents stood in rows with broad avenues between them. The latrines had been placed beside the river, so the current would wash away the wastes. The horse lines were to the north, and beyond them, two dozen elephants grazed beside the water, pulling up reeds with their trunks. Griff glanced at the great grey beasts with approval. There's not a war horse in all of Westeros that will stand against them. Tall battle standards of cloth of gold flapped atop lofty poles along the perimeters of the camp. Beneath them, armed and armoured sentries walked their rounds with spears and crossbows, watching every approach.
3: So, even under Harry Strickland, who, like we said, was judged to be a bit lax by John Connington, we see that the Golden Company are extremely professional, well organised and disciplined. And really, is this discipline that's another reason why the company have an elite reputation among sellswords. And Connington later thinks that these were the heirs of bitter steel, and discipline was mother's milk to them. We also dug up an old interview in which George explained this kind of spectrum of sellsword companies. He said... Some of the sellsword companies are very disciplined, and some are nothing but rabble joined together in search of loot. At one end, there would be the Golden Company. At the other end, the Brave Companions.
2: Okay, so we also see that the company are frustrated with their current situation. They've broken contract for Lyria, which means dishonour, and Tristan Rivers sums up the feeling in the camp. Which plan? The fat man's plan? The one that changes every time the moon turns? First, Viserys Targaryen was to join us with 50,000 Dothraki screamers at his back. Then the beggar king was dead, and it was to be his sister, a pliable young child queen who was on her way to Pentos with three new-hatched dragons. Instead, the girl turns up on Slaver's Bay and leaves a string of burning cities in her wake, and the fat man decides we should meet her by Volantis. Now that plan is in ruins as well.
3: There's trouble in Volantis near to where they are camped. Danny hasn't arrived to meet them and now Aegon shows up and proposes the plan to attack Westeros doing so with enough kind of charisma and spirit to convince the men. And so the Golden Company are ready for war and a journey to Westeros.
2: Right, and now let's close this section by considering their composition, another factor that differentiates them from other sellsword companies. Here's a passage. We have 10,000 men in the company, as I'm sure Lord Connington remembers from his years of service with us. 500 knights, each with three horses, 500 squires with one mount apiece, and elephants. We must not forget the elephants. And later we learn of... 1,000 archers. A third of these archers are listed as crossbowmen, while another third are said to be using double-curved horn and sinew bows of the east. The final part of the archers consists of men with Westerosi blood who use big U longbows, and 50 summer islanders using great bows of golden harp. This all adds up to around 2,000 men, so we can take a guess at about 8,000 infantry.
3: Yeah, so 10,000 men approximately in total make no mistake this is huge for a sellsword company and they're actually noted to be the largest sellsword company in Essos but it's actually still small for an invading force going into Westeros however they are very diverse and multifaceted they have archers of different types meaning they can employ different variations of ranged attacks they have enough knights with plentiful horses to comprise quite a decent cavalry, elephants to cause all kinds of trouble in the field and to oppose war horses, and a healthy supply of infantrymen. Providing they have decent siege capabilities, this all stands them in good stead for any kind of battle and with their discipline factored in, they should be a force to be reckoned with on the battlefield. Altogether, we can see why the Golden Company have such a great reputation and also why they were Stannis' first choice when he was looking for sellswords.
2: Yeah, and the fact that they have 500 knights is interesting, as not long after this figure is revealed, we get this from Barriston when he's giving military counsel to Daenerys in Marine. If I had 500 knights,
3: yeah, and of course, the golden Company's 500 knights had been unbeknownst to her or Baristan, waiting for Danny near Volantis. is an interesting tidbit, I think, with a twist of irony. and anyway, Up next, I'll be looking at Aegon's invasion of Westeros with the Golden Company and what's happening at Storm's End early in the Winds of Winter with our returning guest, Brynden Beefish.
2: And then Prince Aegon spoke. Then put your hopes on me. Daenerys is Prince Rhaegar's sister, but I am Rhaegar's son. I am the only dragon that you need.
3: And now that we've covered the current status of Harry Strickland and the Golden Company, we get to their invasion of Westeros. And once again, from the Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog, we're joined by Brynden Beefish for this segment... Hello, Brendan. Hey, boy, how's it going? Long time, no talk.
4: Uh, excited to be with you for one of my favorite parts of Dance Dragons and the plotline I'm most looking forward to in The Winds of Winter. And like I talked with my Lady Gwyn before, it's nice to be finally talking to you again after I saw both of you fine folks at Balticon back in May.
3: Yes, a great time was had. And yeah, this is an exciting segment. So let's get right into it. Aegon and John Connington were departing Essos with one of the best militaries in the world. What was the Golden Company's plan, Brynden? It's interesting. The original plan
4: was that the Golden Company would acquire ships from the Valentines, sail from Selhoris to Lys, acquire supplies in Lys, and then sail for the shores of Westeros. They would then land at a small stretch of coast south of Griffins Roost, move off the beach make a camp in the Rainwood, and then march for their primary target, Griffin's Roost, with secondary targets of Rainhouse and Crow's Nest. From there, the company would then focus on other targets in the Stormlands as well as beyond the Stormlands.
3: Okay, but as with most plans in the Song of Ice and Fire, their plan wouldn't survive first contact with the enemy. In this case, the enemy was the weather, right? Right. So... Everything went well
4: up to Lys, but then storms hit the fleet after they departed, and the fleet was literally blown apart as they sailed for the Stormlands. John Connington and his contingent of sellswords landed near Griffin's Roost, but the rest of the company landed elsewhere. So Connington had to deal with an immediate question. Did he have the numbers to take Griffin's Roost? And the answer was, well, surprisingly, yeah, he did. Connington was an experienced soldier and commander, and he had planned for this contingency by splitting some of the Golden Company's best soldiers, significantly the archers, up prior to the voyage across
3: the Narrow Sea. Yeah, he did, and I've got the quote here. John Connington had insisted that homeless Harry Strickland break Balak's command into 10 companies of 100 men and place each company upon a different ship. So, some pretty clever planning there by John Connington, I think. Brynden, do you want to tell us what happened next?
4: Yeah. So, Aegon, John Conn, and the Golden Company landed their original landing site, but there's only really a small force that lands with them. They move off the beach into the rainwood, where they make a secret base out of sight of any potential enemies. There, John Connington and his company wait for more reinforcements. When none appear... Connington assesses the force he has on hand and makes the decision that their force is sufficient for the attack against Griffin's roost.
3: What was interesting about that was that Connington estimates that roughly only a quarter of the Golden Company was present in the rainwood. That means only about two and a half thousand soldiers were available for the assault. Additionally, Connington had to dispatch Tristan Rivers to take the Crow's Nest and Laswell Peak to take the Rain House. So Connington's force may have only numbered around one and a half thousand by the time that the Golden Company began moving on Griffin's Roost. But
4: there's sort of a benefit to that really because it's such a small force. A smaller force would be less visible on the approach to Griffin's Roost. And it worked with Coynton's plan on how to
3: actually take the castle. Right, and the plan was to move from the Rainwood up to Griffin's Roost itself and use the cover and concealment that the Rainwood would have offered them as they approached. From there, they would make their final deployments in and around Griffin's Roost to both take out any defenders as well as prevent word of an attack from getting out. Yeah, Exactly. So John Connington deployed Black
4: Baloch's archers to take out any defenders who would rush to defend the castle, as well as place archers near the Maester's Tower to shoot any ravens that the Maester from Griffin's Roost might try to send to King's Landing. So with a solid plan in place, the Golden Company moved practically silent
3: through the rainwood towards Griffin's Roost. And still, John Connington thought that even with this good, solid plan in place, he would take a lot of casualties. Here's the quote... Griff expected to lose a hundred men, perhaps more. They lost four.
4: Yeah, exactly. So John Connington's plan succeeded beyond his wildest hopes. And primarily, it succeeded because the Knight of Griffin's Roost had been negligent to the castle's defenses. The woods had been allowed to grow up all the way to the causeway of Griffin's Roost, and this allowed the Golden Company's infantry to rush up to the castle's walls without taking any projectile fire from the battlements until it was too late. When Franklin Flowers' infantrymen reached the gate, they brought a battering ram with them. The defenders tried to pour boiling oil onto the heads of the men ramming the gate, except, well, they sort of forgot to heat the oil before pouring it. Meanwhile, Black Balak's archers loosed arrows at the defenders, as well as brought down every bird flying from the maester's tower. The battle ended very quickly with a decisive, practically
3: bloodless victory, at least for the Golden Company. Yes, quite the victory. So, with Griffin's roost in hand, Connington began to prepare for the battles to come. First, though, he received news of where the rest of the Golden Company had ended up. Word reached Griffin's roost that the Volantines had dumped the Golden Company at any spare speck of land that they could find. In Ariane's sample chapter from The Winds of Winter, we find out the full extent of where the Golden Company ended up. Here's the quote: Griffin's roost had fallen to them, Rainhouse, House, Crow's Nest, Mistwood, even Greenstone on its island, all taken. Tarth had fallen too. Some fisher folk will tell you. These swords now hold most of Cape Roth and half the stepstones. We hear talk of elephants in the Rainwood.
4: It's kind of crazy. The thing about all of these landings is that at first blush, they should have been absolutely disastrous to the Golden Company's invasion plan. But they ended up working out and bringing an unexpected windfall, as the Golden Company was able to capture several castles that they did not originally intend to capture. Even with these castles, though, John Connington had his eyes on a greater prize, Storm's End.
3: Yes, Storm's End would be quite the prize for Aegon. It has that strong wall and could protect Prince Aegon from any counterattack by the Lannisters and the Tyrells. Here's John Connington's thoughts on Storm's End. Once taken, Storm's End will give us a secure fastness to which we may retreat at need, and winning it will prove our strength. However, there was a propaganda purpose to taking the castle as
4: well. There was. Taking Storm's End would cause the realm to take Aegon seriously. Greenstone, Rainhouse, Tarth, or Mistwood were were solid wins for the Golden Company, but the Golden Company taking Storm's End would make the realm shake. Storm's End has never fallen by force of arms, so taking the castle would be a massive propaganda coup for Aegon. But it goes beyond that. Storm's End is currently the last of Stannis Baratheon's castles in the south of Westeros. If the Golden Company marched against Storm's End, and took it, they would be showing themselves to be the quote-unquote third way. They would be distinguishing themselves from both the hated Lannisters, as well as from Stannis, who was
3: unloved by both Westeros and the Stormlands itself. Yes, very interesting. So just before the end of John Connington's final chapter in A Dance with Dragons, Connington calls the officers of the Golden Company together for a strategy session. It seems like most of the officers are content with their victories so far and think they'll batten down the hatches and await Daenerys Stormborn. But John Connington already has something else in mind. A more cautious commander might have waited for the rest of the Golden Company to make its way to Griffin's Roost. But John Connington had to move now while they still had the initiative. Exactly. But there
4: was a bit of a wrinkle in Connington's plan. John thought that he might lead the attack himself, but as he mentioned in an earlier segment, when Aegon showed up at Griffin's Roost, he told Lord Connington that he intended to lead the attack. The attack, though, would be extremely dangerous for Connington and his young prince. There was no way that the Golden Company could take the castle by traditional battle. The Golden Company wasn't even at full strength, but even if it was, it likely wouldn't matter. The Tyrells had besieged Storm's End twice with tens of thousands of men, but they had failed to take the castle. Fortunately, Connington seemed to have
3: a plan in mind to take the castle. Yes, guile, or as the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines it, sly or cunning intelligence. Lord Connington knew he couldn't take the castle by any traditional means. For one, the castle was practically impregnable. For another, there was still an army outside of Storm's End besieging it. And we'll have more to say on Lord Rowan in the next segment, but for now, keep the Lord of Golden Grove in mind. So, moving the narrative ahead, at last report from Kevin Lannister's epilogue POV from A Dance with Dragons, John Connington was moving against Storm's End. So, Brendan, John Connington would have to use quite the guile, wouldn't he? He
4: would. But interestingly, George R. R. Barton originally intended the guile that John Connington planned to use against Storm's End to occur off page. However, shortly after he published A Dance with Dragons, he stated that the Battle of Storm's End should really occur on page and was working on writing this. Given our POV characters in the region, I think it's most likely that this will be seen from John Connington's POV in The Winds of Winter. Now, we actually know the result of the Battle of Storm's End which is something we'll get into in a few minutes, but we don't know the how. And listener beware, there's going to be some significant spoilers for The Winds of Winter beyond this point. So, how would John Connington, Aegon, and the Golden Company take Storm's End? Without more sample chapters from The Winds of Winter, or, you know, that book itself, we'll have to stop
3: analyzing and do a little pot cracking together. Yes, crackpotting. That is just our territory, Brynden. You're in good hands. (laughs) So one of the first things that stands out about the current status of Storm's End is that the land route to the castle is probably closed off due to Mathis Rowan's army besieging the castle from land. Thus, it's in Aegon and Connington's best interest to bypass the Reachmen that are camped there outside of Storm's End. But how would they do that? So I think the sea route actually holds
4: all sorts of possibilities for the Golden Company. For one, the seas around Storm's End are clear of any enemies. In Arianne's first Winds of Winter chapter, the Redwind fleet is reported to have rounded the Arm of Dorne. Meanwhile, the noble Ariane Waters has stolen the royal fleet and taken up residence in the Stepstones. Additionally, one of the interesting things we find out in Ariane's second Winds of Winter chapter is that the Golden Company still has a few ships on hand. But taking a ship and
3: bypassing the siege lines has some historical precedent as well. Yeah, and we have to dial the clock back some 17 years to Robert's Rebellion and the first Hoel siege of Storm's End to find our precedent, though. Just before Stannis Baratheon and his garrison starved, a certain smuggler arrived outside of Storm's End carrying casks of salt fish and onions. Expertly manoeuvring through the treacherous waters of Shipbreaker Bay, Davos Seaworth landed his ship at Storm's End and resupplied the garrison saving them. So there's our precedent and in Clash Davos gives us a little more information about how he smuggled his way into Storm's End. It says Davos had not expected the blackness. The last time Torches had burned all along the tunnel, and the eyes of starving men had peered down through the murder holes in the ceiling. The portcullis was somewhere ahead, he knew. So there's a pretty big precedent that George left in place there, but there's a problem. Davos was bringing food and supplies to the beleaguered garrison. The Golden Company is coming to kill Stannis' garrison and seize the castle out from under them. Aegon, Connington and the Golden Company might make it to that tunnel, but I think it would be tough to breach the gate and perhaps even harder to get them to open the gate willingly. It's a pretty significant issue, but
4: it's one that's potentially resolved by looking at Stannis' army. Due to his unpopularity, Stannis has consistently had to rely on sellswords and sales to augment his flagging numbers throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. When we meet with Stannis, Maester Cressen reports sellswords crowding the benches around Dragonstorm back in Clash. Later, we meet Salador San, a notorious pirate in sale, who is in Stannis' service. So, Stannis has had to rely on a lot of sellswords. In a similar vein, After Stannis receives a loan from the Iron Bank of Braavos in A Dance with Dragons, Stannis dispatches Justin Massey for Essos and Theon's Winds of Winter chapter to bring sellsword companies under his banners. The one sellsword army he has in mind is one that might be familiar to listeners. Here's the quote. You will collect their coin and hire ships and sellswords. A company of good report, if you can find one. The golden company would be my first choice if they are not already under contract. Seek for them in the disputed lands if needs be. So Stannis instructed Justin Massey to seek for the very company that was now trying to take his last stronghold in the South. Now, that's not to say that Stannis's garrison would be aware that Stannis was interested in hiring the Golden Company. Just that Stannis's reputation is one where sellswords arriving to relieve the
3: garrison at Storm's End would not be an unexpected sight. Yeah, I think you're right, and it's really interesting. So let's say that the Golden Company sailed towards Storm's End... Wouldn't it be beguiling if the Golden Company flies Stannis's Flaming Heart of R'hllor sigil on their ships and sews his badges onto their surcoats? Is that cunning, Brynden? Oh, absolutely. It's fantastic planning and great tactics if they're going to go with that route. Yeah, it's a very good idea and all credit to you. So the Golden Company might not have to fight their way into that castle at all. Maybe they'll sail in bearing foodstuffs and wearing Stannis's sigil as if Stannis has hired the Golden Company. Given that the garrison had been under siege for at least a few months now, it seems further possible that the garrison will open the portcullis and let the Golden Company into Storm's End itself. As Davos said, this is as far as we go. Unless you have a man inside to lift the gate for us. But now, and we know that the Golden Company is inside, what do we think will happen next? So, here we have to return to the character of John Connington. While Aegon
4: might serve as the figureheaded leader of the attack, the plan is likely going to be Connington's. If you'll recall from our earlier segment, John Connington had realized that he would need to take moral shortcuts and take on the name of Butcher to seat Aegon onto the Iron Throne. Now, the garrison at Storm's End might welcome the additional soldiers and provisions that the Golden Company might bring into the castle, but they're probably not utter fools either. They're probably very wary of any attempts by the quote-unquote Lannisters or Tyrells to infiltrate the castle. So what's one good cultural check to ensure that they wouldn't get slaughtered in a ruse? perhaps the Sacred Laws of Hospitality,
3: otherwise known as Guest right. Hmm, and I think I know where you're going with this. As we discussed at length in our Catelyn and North Remembers episodes, Guest right was a universally accepted tradition from North of the Wall to Dawn that protected guests from harm from their hosts. What's lesser known about Guest right is that the, the tradition also shielded a host from violence by their guest, Guest-breaking guest right was seen as one of the most vile acts in Westeros. Or as Jor Mormont put it back when the Night's Watch mutinied and killed Craster under his roof in Storm, the gods will curse us. There is no crime so foul as for a guest to bring murder into a man's hall. So, bearing that in mind, how will John Connington treat guest right with Stannis's garrison? So far, we haven't
4: really seen John Connington do any morally evil actions in his invasion of Westeros. However, we know that George characterized Connington in such a way that he's embraced a consequentialist end's justified the means morality. In my estimation, I think it's likely that John Connington and the Golden Company will accept guest right by taking salt and bread from Stannis' garrison, and in keeping with Connington's conclusions about how he needed to become Tywin Lannister. He and the Golden Company will slaughter Stannis' garrison as soon as the opportunity arises.
3: Well, it's a very interesting idea in theory. We did promise a crackpot, didn't we? So there's <laughs> one. That would definitely be a dark turn for Lord Connington, if, if that's how George intends to write the Battle of Storm's End chapter. And I think we presented a plausible scenario for how John Connington could plan to take Storm's End. Whatever the case, we do know that Aegon and Connington do take Storm's End. At the end of Ariane's second Winds of Winter chapter, Halden Halfmeister tells Arianne, Has no one told you Storm's End is ours? The hand awaits you there. So, obviously, Storm's End did fall to Aegon and Jon Connington. The how will definitely be very interesting to read when the Winds of Winter comes out. Oh, for sure.
4: Regardless of how exactly Storm's End fell to Connington, the seizure is likely going to shock all of Westeros. The greatest castle in all of southern Westeros, arguably, which had never fallen by force of arms, will have fallen to Aegon. Westeros will be forced to take notice of Aegon, and this will almost certainly have consequences for the future of the story going forward.
3: Excellent. Uh, Yes, it will, Brynden. Thanks so much for joining us for your two-parter today. Yeah, it was a real pleasure
4: to join you and Lady Gwyn, and thanks so much for having me. Um, Again, I really uh, love this storyline and really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it a little bit more in depth with you all. So thanks again so much for having me.
3: Okay, Brendan, and I'm sure one day you'll be back for another appearance. You are becoming somewhat of a regular on Radio Westeros, so (laughs) we'll hope to have you back one day. Cheers. See ya. And please remember to check out Brendan's Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog, and especially his Blood of the Conqueror series, which is pertinent to what we're talking about today. We highly recommend it. Okay, and up next, we will look at the potential clash between Aegon and Daenerys as we consider The Dance of the Dragons, Volume 2. It's up next, but first, here's a reading of John Connington's point of view immediately preceding The Invasion.
2: Alone in the tent, as the gold and scarlet rays of the setting sun shone through the open flap, John Connington shrugged off his wolfskin cloak, slipped his mail shirt off over his head, settled on the camp stool, and peeled the glove from his right hand. The nail on his middle finger had turned as black as jet, he saw, and the gray had crept up almost to the first knuckle. The tip of his ring finger had begun to darken, too, and when he touched it with the point of his dagger, he felt nothing. Death, he knew. But slow. I still have time. A year. Two years. Five. Some stone men live for ten. Time enough to cross the sea, to see Griffin's roost again, to end the usurper's line for good and all, and to put Rhaegar's son upon the Iron Throne. Then Lord John Connington could die content."
3: Okay, so we've taken a good look at Aegon and company, seen glimpses of battle strategy with Brynden, and now the question arises, where will Aegon's story end? As we heard just now, John Connington is determined that it will end with the Iron Throne. But since that's Daenerys' goal as well, now it's time to look at an endgame.
2: Well, going by the hints, all indications point to a Dance of the Dragons 2.0. The first Dance of the Dragons, between rival claimants for the Iron Throne, Rhaenyra, the so-called half-year queen, and her half-brother Aegon II Targaryen, took place nearly 170 years prior to the main series. We learned much about it in the novellas The Princess and the Queen and The Rogue Prince, with a more in-depth telling planned for the future Targaryen history book Fire and Blood, so brief spoilers here for those. Basically, the first dance ended tragically for most of the parties involved and led to the deaths of many and ultimately the near extinction of the Targaryen dragons.
3: And George has indicated that there will be another Dance of the Dragons in this story. In an interview in 2003, George was asked, Will we find out more about the Dance of the Dragons in future books? And George answered, The first dance or the second? The second will be the subject of a book. The first will be mentioned from time to time, I'm sure.
2: Hmm, interesting. And then, in the first Ariane chapter, From the Winds of Winter, we're introduced to a girl called Tiora Tolland, who has some rather curious dreams. Here's the passage. It was then that pasty, pudgy Tiora raised her eyes from the cream cakes on her plate. It is dragons. Dragons, said her mother. Tiora, don't be mad. I'm not. They're coming. How could you possibly know that? Her sister asked, with a note of scorn in her voice. One of your little dreams... Tiora gave a tiny nod, Chin trembling. They were dancing, in my dream, and everywhere the dragons danced, the people died. Seven, save us, Lady Namella gave an exasperated sigh. If you did not eat so many cream cakes, you would not have such dreams. Rich foods are not for girls your age when your humours are so unbalanced. So,
3: hints to prophetic dreams there. And A Dance of the Dragons is mentioned, where everywhere the dragons danced, the people died. And speaking of all things prophetic, let's talk about Danny's vision in the House of the Undying, under the Slayer of Lies triad. A cloth dragon swayed on poles amidst a cheering crowd, which many fans believe to symbolise Aegon, And we can take an educated guess that not only will there be another Dance of the Dragons, but that Daenerys might end up killing Aegon in it, completing the Slayer of Lies title.
2: So, we might just have Aegon's future and Downfall hinted at strongly there. And if this is correct, the question becomes... How will Aegon end up in a second Dance of the Dragons with Daenerys? How can we connect the dots into a path that outlines this eventuality? Well, let's start with Aegon's current situation. He's at Storm's End, most likely surrounded by a small contingent left there by Maes Tyrell under the command of Mathis Rowan to oust Stannis' defenders. Apparently Aegon has done that job for them, but we know that with the Golden Company being too small of a force for the task of taking the throne, Aegon is going to need to make some friends.
3: Yes, yeah, so let's talk about Aegon's friends in the Reach, a subject that's piqued the interests of many readers. In A Dance with Dragons, Laswell Peak of the Golden Company says this. Even after a century, some of us still have friends in the Reach. The power of Highgarden may not be what Mace Tyrell imagines.
2: So, Laswell talks of friends in the Reach, and people wonder about these being fairly major houses of Westeros. But we think the key is the reference to a hundred years ago, which is when the Blackfire Rebellions happened. So, Peak is probably referring to old friends of the Golden Company, those who fought for the Blackfire cause, houses such as Caswell, Peak, Virwell, Risley, and Cockshaw. Yeah, these
3: houses are mentioned in the Tales of Duncan Egg, but are barely mentioned in the main series at all, and in all reality, aren't likely to be very strong all in all. So while they might help to get some men, at least, over to the Golden Company, and John Connington will be hoping for some kind of domino effect in the area, presumably, we think that despite Peak's thoughts on their friends in the Reach, the real game changers will likely be new friends Aegon will make going forward.
2: Right. And first up might be Mathis Rowan and his contingent surrounding Storm's End. With Stannis's men toppled at Storm's End, Rowan's men will no doubt be at a loss regarding what exactly they should be doing. Being so far from direct command, there might be an opportunity for Jon Connington to negotiate with these men. Brinda Beefish has actually written about this, and he points out that Mathis was visibly disgusted when Tywin brought up the killing of Baby Aegon, and that he also fought for the Targaryens during Robert's Rebellion.
3: So what's Mathis going to think when he sees Targaryen banners at Storm's End and hears of Aegon being alive? With Mace Tyrell so far away, might he be tempted to switch sides? We think it's a really interesting possibility. With just around a thousand men, it's not exactly earth-shattering numbers. But as we said, Aegon needs to gain some friends and quickly.
2: And there's another candidate for an ally, this time a bigger catch, in Randall Tarley and his force of fifteen to 20,000 men. It's been noted by the fandom, and by Brendan B. Fish again in his essay Friends in the Reach, that Randall might have good cause to turn cloak. First of all, there might be a contentious relationship with Mace Tyrell under the surface— Randall was the victor over Robert Baratheon at the Battle of Ashford, and yet Mace seems to have taken the credit, which surely grated on Tartley. Mace was then awarded Brightwater Keep following the Battle of the Blackwater, which Randall's wife, Melissa, as the eldest daughter of the attainted Alistair Florin, may have expected to inherit.
3: Yes, sir. Randall can't have been pleased about that, considering he himself took a major leadership role in the attack, and yet was only granted a lesser tract. And remember that Tali had also fought for the Targaryens during the rebellion. Last of all, some fans wonder if Randall might have been turned already by the time of Kevin's epilogue, wondering if he was too quick to dismiss the threat of Aegon. Altogether, Randall Tarly would be a huge coup for Aegon, so it's really very interesting to imagine him allying with the cause. He's a very highly rated military commander with a huge host of men that would otherwise be fighting for the Tyrells. And so Tarly's potential defection would cause shockwaves in the Tyrell camp and could turn the tide Aegon's way.
2: Okay, and Randall might not be the biggest ally in waiting. In the two Arianne chapters from The Winds of Winter, we see Arianne journeying to Griffin's Roost on a mission from her father to meet with John Connington. With Connington absent upon her arrival, the Golden Company rather forcefully invite her to Storm's End, and the feeling is that she's about to make a major decision of her own. It seems that Arianne might be about to ally with Aegon possibly by way of a marriage.
3: Yeah, this could be a huge move for both parties and we think it seems to be in the cards. This might force Doran's hand into allying Dawn with Aegon's cause in spite of his natural caution. Given the Dornish have largely stayed out of the War of the Five Kings, to have their army on board would be a huge boost for Aegon If Aegon could sway both the Dornish and Tarly, he would have a serious force to strike King's Landing with.
2: Yeah, he would. And so, Aegon taking King's Landing during the Winds of Winter seems like a definite possibility. In 2013, George said, There will be several more people taking the throne before the end, and we think Aegon will be one of them. We've shown what we think are the main candidates to help facilitate Aegon's move for the throne, but let's remember that we've been more or less told by the author that there will be a second Dance of the Dragons, and so now let's consider Daenerys.
3: Okay, and the first point of interest is what we were saying about Dawn allying with Aegon. This obviously would take a Daenerys Dawn matchup right off the table, with a skewed story of how Quentin got roasted sure to reach Dornish shores. With Danny being accompanied by a horde of barbarians, and with an Aryan-Aegon marriage looking possible, Dawn may well side with Aegon over the exiled princess they'd initially sought to unite with, as we saw in the Quentin fiasco.
2: But we think it's likely Danny will have added a united khalasar, the Iron Fleet, and a Valentine fleet as well to those troops and dragons she already has by the time she arrives in Westeros. With a khalasar of 100,000 plus, transportation would be a heck of a boon for her and perhaps she simply won't need allies in Westeros for her own invasion, all things considered. What Danny will think when Aegon, allegedly her nephew, is trying to take the throne or is already sat on it is anyone's guess. Will she initially wonder about allying with him, given Danny's been a lonely soul with no blood kin save the abusive Viserys? Will she think he's a fake and relate him to the mummer's dragon she's been warned against? Or will it be a confusing mixture of emotions for Danny?
3: And well, we also can't forget that Daenerys will likely be advised by Tyrion, who knows a thing or two about Aegon and his hand, Lord Connington. And one thing is for sure, for a Dance of the Dragons 2.0, Danny and Aegon need to end up in opposition. So let's consider what that would look like if Danny and Aegon's proposed forces meet. Here's an early quote from Jura, a knight who spent time with the Dothraki. When I first went into exile, I looked at the Dothraki and saw half-naked barbarians as wild as their horses. If you had asked me then, princess, I should have told you that a thousand good knights would have no trouble putting to flight a hundred times as many Dothraki. But if I asked you now? Now, the knight said. I am less certain. They are better riders than any knight, utterly fearless, and their bows outrange ours. In the Seven Kingdoms, most archers fight on foot from behind a shield wall or a barricade of sharpened stakes. The Dothraki fire from horseback, charging or retreating, it makes no matter. They are full as deadly, and there are so many of them, my lady.
2: So, knights versus the Dothraki. It's an interesting consideration and one that could be relevant to a potential Aegon Daenerys friction. And here, Jorah cautions against underestimating the Dothraki. And much later on, in Dance with Dragons, we get a mock-up fight between knights and Dothraki at the Fighting Pits, and we wonder if this could contain a touch of foreshadowing. Here's the passage. After the beast fights came a mock battle, pitting six men on foot against six horsemen, the former armed with shields and long swords; the latter with Dothraki araks. The mock knights were clad in male hauberks, whilst the mock Dothraki wore no armor. At first the riders seemed to have the advantage, riding down two of their foes and slashing the ear from a third, but then the surviving knights began to attack the horses, and one by one the riders were unmounted and slain.
3: Yes, yeah, so we see here the Dothraki seeming to gain the advantage over the knights riding them down until the Dothraki horses are targeted and then it's the knights who gain the upper hand. Could something like this happen between Aegon and Danny's forces, but this time for real? Could this be foreshadowing, we wonder?
2: That's well, certainly interesting to consider. But perhaps the biggest discussion point, greater even than the armies that these two might have with them, is that of dragons, the ultimate force multiplier. If Aegon and Danny are going to square off in a second Dance of the Dragons to really make this proposed rivalry work to full effect, we firmly believe Aegon must get a dragon. We don't think George would pass the opportunity by for some dragon versus dragon action.
3: Yeah, and so the question arises... How on earth would Aegon end up mounting one of Danny's precious dragons? It's really difficult to say with any complete confidence, but we have wondered before if there's a hint that Brown Ben Plum could be the answer. He could change sides to Aegon and take a dragon with him, either in pursuit of gold or perhaps simply to be on what he perceives to be the winning side. And if doing so required him to control a dragon, he does have that drop of Targaryen blood, if that turns out to be a prerequisite.
2: And not only has Brown Ben already betrayed Danny before rejoining her side in the second Tyrion Winds of Winter chapter, but there's also this line from that chapter. Brown Ben Plum wore plate and mail over boiled leather. The silk cloak flowing from his shoulders was his only concession to vanity. It rippled when he moved, the colour changing from pale violet to deep purple.
3: Yeah, so it's interesting to consider the description of the cloak changing from pale violet to deep purple as possible foreshadowing of a turned cloak in light of the fact that while Daenerys' eyes are described on numerous occasions as violet, Young Griff's eyes are described by Tyrion as dark purple. So Brown Ben Plum turning cloak from Danny to Aegon and perhaps being the one to deliver a dragon is our crackpot idea there.
2: And anyway, however it might happen, the notion of Aegon getting his hands on a dragon is given more depth by the Seves game that he plays with Tyrion. Just like the Dothraki versus knights mock battle in A Dance with Dragons, Seves might contain some foreshadowing. So let's take a look. Just to recap with what we said earlier in the episode, here are Aegon's tactics. Young Griff arrayed his army for attack, with dragon, elephants, and heavy horse up front, a young man's formation, as bold as it is foolish. He risks all for the quick kill. He let the prince have first move. Haldon stood behind them, watching the play. When the prince reached for his dragon, Tyrion cleared his throat. I would not do that if I were you, It is a mistake to bring your dragon out too soon. He smiled innocently. Your father knew the dangers of being overbold.
3: So, as we covered in the earlier segment, Aegon is quite immature sometimes, and here Tyrion thinks him to be overly bold. However, when the game plays out, it says that the imp, and quote, seized his dragon, flew it across the board. I hope your grace will pardon me, your king is trapped, death in four. The prince stared at the playing board. My dragon He's too far away to save you. You should have moved her out to the centre of the battle. But you said, I lied. Trust no one and keep your dragon close.
2: So, Aegon begins his game with an overly bold setup, but loses because he didn't keep his dragon close. Could this be a hint at how Danny might defeat Aegon? Could Danny slay the lie foreshadowed by the House of the Undying Vision? Will a dragon die in the process, tragically, at the hands of his mother? These are all questions we hope will be answered by The Winds of Winter and The Dream of Spring.
3: Yeah, we hope so. And one other factor we haven't discussed is the Blackfire theory. We covered it well enough in the last episode if you've heard that. But if Aegon is a secret Blackfire, will it be revealed in story in the future? And could this be part of the setup of the Dance of the Dragons? Could it be a factor that contributes towards it? Remember that Tyrion might have his own suspicions about Aegon's identity. That's possible. And as it stands, an Aegon versus Danny scenario would be terrible for King's Landing as we enter wintertime with mass devastation and the horrors of war set to be fully explored by George, remembering Tiora Tolan's dream about dragons. They were dancing in my dream and everywhere the dragons danced, the people died.
2: But a Blackfire reveal, if there ever is one, would really put the cat amongst the pigeons, remembering the depth of civil war that the Targaryen Blackfire rivalry has already inflicted upon Westeros. One thing's for sure if Danny does defeat and kill Aegon, Blackfire or not, perhaps Varys and Illyrio could be guilty of underestimating one of their own pawns to dramatic effect, similar to what we predict will happen with Littlefinger and Sansa Stark.
3: Yeah, so in conclusion, a dance of the dragons at this point in the story, with Westeros already savaged by the War of the Five Kings, could really decimate what's left of the capital. With Danny bringing a united khalasar, meaning the entire Dothraki male race is on the line, with dragons attacking not only each other, but also a city filled with caches of wildfire... And with the others looming in the north somewhere, victory for Daenerys would surely come at a great cost and not just to her. The story of the original Dance of the Dragons was not one of victory and glory, but of futility and loss. We expect no different from the second Dance of the Dragons.
2: Thanks so much for joining us, and we hope you've enjoyed our look at Aegon VI and his arc in The Winds of Winter. Up next, we'll be turning our attention backwards with an episode all about Eddard Stark, so we hope you'll come back for that. Now, as usual, it's time to give credit where credit is due. Thanks so much to Brynden Beefish for joining us today to share his analysis of John Connington and Aegon's invasion. You can find more of his work at The Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog. Thanks as always to George R.R. Martin for this Song of Ice and Fire and to Kevin McLeod for allowing us to use elements of his music in our production. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also donate and comment on our content there, or find us on YouTube, and of course you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook,
1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
2: Book Google Plus or Tumblr. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time with Ned. Bye for now.